Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training, A Constructional Guide to Becoming Your Horse's Best Friend, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Gavalia. We're about to launch into a fascinating conversation about public and private events with Dr. Joe Lang. We've just finished up a four-part series on the Feldenkrais work with Anita Snae as our guide through that. And I think it is perfect that we're following the Feldenkrais series with this discussion with Joe about public and private events. In episode 259, Anita shared an ATM lesson with all of us. What you experienced from this lesson is a study of one. It's unique to you. And I have no way of knowing if what you experienced is anything even remotely related to what I experienced. And this is relevant and important, especially when it comes to writing lessons, where we are trying to translate into words what is a kinesthetic experience. So when an instructor tells you to fill your back, what in the world does that mean? And how do you do it? And that, of course, is one of the great puzzles of writing, is how do we take the words that our instructors are giving us and translate that into the action of writing? So that's one of the reasons that I was particularly interested in this discussion of public and private events. And and one of the reasons why I think it's relevant to the series that we just did on the Feldenkrais work. In fact, it may help you to understand more clearly what the Feldenkrais work is really exploring. So Joe's discussion of public and private events begins with this, how do we relate and put into words this kinesthetic experience? It begins there, but then Joe is going to carry us much further, and he's going to take us into a discussion of what is consciousness, and are animals aware? I'm never sure how to introduce Joe especially since this is a podcast about horses and Joe is not a horse person. In simplest terms, he's a behavior analyst. He has over 50 years of experience in experimental and applied analysis of behavior. Joe earned his PhD in behavioral science at the University of Chicago. And at Chicago, he investigated animal models of psychopathology. He contributed to the discovery and characterization of contingency adduction, and Joe has extensive clinical behavioral analysis experience. So if you have a horse whose behavior puzzles you, some of our previous podcasts with Joe, in which we talked about the nonlinear contingency analysis, may really help you to understand the dynamics of what you're dealing with. Joe has also worked extensively on the design of learning environments. 
He developed the technology that forms the basis of the award-winning and patented Early Reading and Reading Comprehension online program, and he has published over 50 articles. I could go on and on listing many more of his professional credentials, but instead I'll just say that Joe was one of the regular presenters at the Art and Science of Animal Training conferences. That's where I first met him. And Joe's talks were always, for me, one of the highlights of the conference, in part because he prompted me to look at familiar concepts through a very different lens. I always think of Joe as better than Google. During any conversation, he'll rattle off at least half a dozen references that need to be explored. You'll discover very quickly what I mean by that as soon as we get started. Joe has been our guest before. We've talked about contingency adduction, nonlinear analysis, the effect of schedules on social behavior, and degrees of freedom, among many other topics. Most recently, we did a series with Joe on schedules of reinforcement. Those are episodes 239 through 242. I suggest that you listen to episode 239 in conjunction with this current series on public and private events. That episode was a teaser for the conversation we are about to have. If all of this introduction sounds very dry and too academic for your tastes, don't worry. Joe is a wonderful storyteller, and he's going to make your head spin as he upends many of the assumptions we make about the world we think we're living in. Our conversation will explain what I mean by that. So let's jump right into our conversation and see all the very surprising directions that we're going to be heading. Thank you immensely for doing this, for joining us yet again for an afternoon of conversation. And this topic of private events uh, is both intriguing and interesting to me, and also, I think, incredibly relevant to those of us who work with other species, and then particularly for horse people, because so much of our instruction is tactile. You know, mm -hmm. it's, you're, you're having a riding lesson, and an instructor tells you, just fill your back. It's like, what does that mean? Yeah. And what, what fill your back means to that person who's giving the instructions, how do you translate that into something that is meaningful for you? Right. And so this, I think this understanding that there are private events and that when what I experience and my understanding of when I'm working a horse and I slide mm -hmm. down a lead rope and there's all this information that seems so vibrant and useful and that I'm aware of, the next person may not feel anything. And that becomes really relevant because it's not talked about very much when we right. are talking about instruction. So when you said right. private events, I definitely wanted to say, yes, <laughs> sign us up. We want to hear more. And then right. going back to that conversation, the, the presentation 
at Orca that you did on emotions. And that, that really resonated when you were saying, you know, when, when you go to a doctor's office and and the doctor says, so on, you know, from one to 10, how much pain are you in? And you were saying, you can't know what somebody else is feeling, but what they're really telling you when they tell you, oh, it's a two or it's a six or a 10 or it's 15, they're telling you the level of intervention that they want. And I thought that was a really great way of looking at all of this. So in part, that's a small part of why I find this an exciting topic. So I will shut up and let you jump in. Well, well, no, it's it's it is an exciting topic, and it's uh, timely. More and more people are beginning to talk about it in this area, and there's all sorts of discussion now about what is consciousness and so forth, which we'll get into a little bit if you want to. Absolutely. I but I think it's it's good to understand. You brought up something quite interesting, and that is what we call kinesthetic feedback. Yeah. In other words, feedback that is occurring in space and time based upon changes in in muscular movements and other types of, of tactile stimuli that are coming in contact with the skin and can be generated through changes in, you can feel a muscle being tense and relaxed, for example. And we call that a private event because no one can see the muscle tensing and relaxing unless you have special equipment attached to it. Well, we dis- we differentiate between that type of unobservable or private event and those private events, which have no, if you to put it in a generic kind of common language, no nerve endings connected to them. In other words, muscles and kidneys, and when we have an inflamed kidney and so on, we actually have changes in nerves that occur as a function of the inflamed kidney or the muscle changes. In other words, we have uh, neuronal connections through our nervous system to these actual events. And so they may be unobserved, but they could be observed with the right instrumentation. You could see a muscle movement. You can see a tightening if you have the right type of equipment. Right. You can't see m- me visualizing a horse. <laughs> right. You can see brainwave changes, but you're still not seeing me visualize a horse. Mm-hmm. Right. And so those two, we differentiate between those two types of private experience and the discussions that we have to account for each. Now, interestingly enough, there's been a considerable amount of work done on developing motor performances and using primarily often unobservable what they call kinesthetic responses that allow people to come in contact with it. And, and, and that's done through a variety of ways. One way is to talk people through it. In other words, you know, you will feel attention, not unlike, and you use a metaphor. Yes. Right? Not unlike what would happen if you found yourself in, or if you're uncomfortable sitting in a chair and you have to move your butt back and forth, you know, to get the comfort. This is what we're talking about. Do you feel this change in that area of your butt when you're in the saddle, for example. I'm making this up. I know nothing right, about this. Right, right, right. You know, but that is, I, that I'm is talking like a sausage, as my mother used to say, yeah. because I don't know what I'm talking about, really. Right. But in terms of the, the specifics, they use this a great deal in athletic training, where, you know, when your feet are over your head, you will feel this. Yes. And then they say, this is not unlike this. And then what they'll do is they'll have 
uh, discrimination exercises. Notice the difference when you do it this way versus that way. When you do it this way versus that way. See the change and so on. Well, you want to feel it this way when you're doing the, the, the task, right? And so there's all kinds of ways that people use to vary. And it's a variation process, typically, to vary the events which cause changes in those discriminations. Interestingly enough, major athletes at times will hook up devices to their musculature and say, okay, are your fast twitch muscles working? Are your slow twitch muscles working? And what do you what do you notice when they're when they're looking at it, they're getting feedback from the device and so on. And so this is what the area called biofeedback is often used for, where you can make some of these even gastro secretions. Uh, there was an article uh, an article published in Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, which Goldiman was an author on, that actually used biofeedback to train gastritic responses and so on. So if you can get and make something explicit and then make something contingent on it, you can usually bring it under operant control, under consequential control, yeah. uh, reinforcement control in that sense. So that is one form of private experience for which there is somewhat of a literature on and the and particularly in in athletic training and so forth one of the people who've done a great deal of work in this area in terms of teaching musical skills and for example is francis mechner and the and i will send you a major paper by him oh, by major I mean it's long <laughs> it's like 104 <laughs> pages or something but it's really good on how to teach motor control and okay. what what francis did for many many years was he was a coach he didn't do this for a living he did this as a as a as an interest he was a you know he, he did all sorts of other he was an amazing man he is an amazing man he's still alive uh, but uh, people who are concert pianists for example who had a problem with their technique would come to him and he would fix it okay and, and so he could fix very high level performances and so on. And he knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly the exercises needed to, to, you know, to bring the behavior under the right type of kinesthetic feedback and, and, and motor control and so on. And, if, you yeah. know, and it's, it's available through the Mechner Foundation. If you go to the Mechner Foundation website, and he has a series of articles there, one's called Unrevealed Operant, where responses that are not typically observed when reinforcement is occurring are reinforced and how do you make those explicit and uh, motor control and a whole range of other topics. I mean, the guy is brilliant. Some of them you have to have a certain background for, others you don't. So What's the name uh, again? Uh, Francis Mechner, M-E-C-H-N-E-R. He is an extremely interesting man. He's one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. He did portrait painting to pay his way through college. And he's actually gone back to estate sales and bought his portraits back for thousands, tens of thousands of dollars oh. where they were on sale for. They were that good. And he was also a concert pianist. And he's an international go go uh, champion. His, his, I think his son was the international go champion. And so, I mean, and he's a, a, a top flight contingency analyst, behavior analyst. He's worked in many private businesses. Do you know when you see on CNN the little band going and they display the stuff on the side and they mm -hmm. call, get the Chiron up, you'll hear the word yes. Chiron? He developed that. And the, <laughs> I mean, hinges okay. for 
hinges for laptop computers and um, did a tremendous amount of behavior analytic work. Was one of the most successful developers of program instruction. Uh, during the day, started a company called Basic Systems that was eventually purchased, I think, through by um, IBM. And so the he has a, a, a tremendous history of working with animals, with you know, humans, and in business, and he's he's a he's a true Renaissance type of character. So, so before he kicks the bucket, leaves the planet, however you want to phrase it. I hope he tells the rest of us how he managed to get more than 24 hours into every day. So that's the one kind of class of private experience. That's the one we know something about. The other one is more complex. In other words, the ones where we usually associate terms like imagination or visualization or, or thinking or, or private thoughts or or, you know, seeing and hearing when things aren't there, <laughs> right? Yes. And the, that type of private experience is less well studied, even though there's been some work done in that area. But if we look over time, there have been a series of experiments and work that actually do elucidate, shed lights on the problem and offer some of the potential solutions to understanding that. And so, you know, again, it goes back to, you know, um, do you know? Do animals have emotions? The, the question I always ask: Well, do people? Yes. <laughs> you know, let's 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 start there. You know, what governs our saying that we do and don't, and so on, and it becomes a fairly complex and interesting topic, as you know. We talked about it before, and the same thing is true of other private experience. One of the things that I've done, and we'll talk about a little later, is look into the history of Helen Keller. Because Helen Keller, as you know, at the age of two, I had a severe case, I believe it was meningitis, which left her without any vision or hearing. She couldn't see or hear. So she lived in a world without auditory or visual stimuli. From the time she was two to the time she was about seven, she was completely without any training, basically. She was a, a feral creature, if you will, that existed within the confines of her family. Now, what was interesting is she could go over someplace and indicate, oh, she's hungry, right? And she could find her way around. She could feel her way around. Could she, you know, tactile stimuli were still there. Yes. Right? She could she could respond to vibrations and tactile stimuli. That was major, basically her stimulus input. She could feel her feet on the floor. She could feel the textures and so on, of what she was touching and so forth. So she could get around. And of course, she could be grabbed by the hand by her parents and, and taken to certain spots too. And so she had a way of indicating this and so on. And so there was a certain amount of communication that went on between her and her parents. What was fascinating is, if you read her books, where she's written extensively about this, she had no sense of consciousness or self at all during that time. Interesting. None. Zero. She said she lived in an indescribable void, if you will, because she had no words for it and no way of talking. And, it, and there was no it. It wasn't even an it. It didn't even exist for her to call it a void until after she acquired language. So the fact is that here was a human 
but who did not have language, who lived in a moment-to-moment -moment existence, communicating with the family and so forth, but was completely absent any consciousness that that was happening. Which is, uh, it's very hard to imagine. Oh, it is. I can't even imagine what that would be exactly. like. Exactly. Right. No, it, I have it, no. It, I cannot access that. But here's what's fascinating. Here's a human without language. So we see that the capabilities of engaging in these things, of knowing language and having awareness and what you're doing and so on and so forth, it turns out as to be a, a, a total byproduct of acquisition of language. Because once she acquired language, once she learned that difference between I and them that Annie Sullivan taught yes. as a concept, just regular concept teaching. Once she did that and she, you know, the first thing she learned was water, right? The W-A-T-E-R in her hand, running the water over her hand, water, water. And that these feelings were this. Then they did it that Annie and Helen, and then Annie writing it versus Helen making the movements, as soon as she started making those discriminations, that's when the birth of consciousness occurred. Wow. And not until that. And so she a actually... Bit similar to a newborn, no? Would we say a newborn has no consciousness until... Yes, they do not. Not in the sense... I mean, they're conscious. In other words, they, they, they respond to stimuli in their environment. There's a difference between consciousness, in other words, aware that we're doing things and doing things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. And so there's conscious, of course, sure. you know, you're not laying there knocked out. And Skinner talked about that, which we'll get to in a, in a little bit here. If we get time. Talked about that consciousness is a byproduct of being asked questions about ourselves. <laughs> and I said, why are you doing this? What did you just take that? Oh, here's this is yours. This is mine. And you start making these discriminations. And that basically is the basis of consciousness. And Helen Keller proves him right. And by the way, Helen isn't alone. There's about 10,000 other people who've had this experience as well. So the, this is not just a, a one-off. There's just someone who wrote extensively about it. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Helen never had a word in her head, but she's never heard a word. In other words, the right. word dog, she never heard the word dog. She never thought the word dog mm -hmm. or the word horse. Never. Right? Because she's never heard it. So how could she think it? How could she say it to herself if you want to use that? Since she's yeah. never heard it. Right? And so her thinking, if you will, was totally unlike anything that typically is experienced. That we think is thinking. So how and, she did never saw, and she never saw a dog in her life. Right. Or, so, she, could, she could touch a dog. That's what she could exactly. do. So for her, a dog was certain tactile stimuli mm -hmm. and shapes, not words. So her private events, if you will, were all based on tactile stimulation. Mm -hmm. Nothing to do with words per se. And so, and she taught, and she describes it in her book. But here's the problem she has in describing it in her book. Two 
get us to understand it and for her to acquire the means of expressing that she has to use the same score sheets that we were trained with who can do all that yes so it's even her description is not an accurate account yes because she's forced to use words that may not actually describe it as well, but she has forced to use it because there are no other ways of doing it. So it's really fascinating when you come to think about it. Also makes you think about how to communicate with alien species, but that's another that's another topic. But the but the point is that she was conversant in five languages. And you know, she was the founder of the ACLU. And she could actually speak sentences. She can actually speak a sentence. And you can actually go on YouTube and there is a video of her and Annie Sullivan showing how she learned to speak sentences. Wow. And it's the only video I believe of Annie Sullivan that's available. There's there's a Helen Keller, but Annie Sullivan. And they did it by putting their Helens, who's now very sensitive to tactile discrimination, right? Yes. I mean, this is very sensitive now. Put her hand on Annie's throat and face and jaw. So as she, she could spoke, feel the vocal cords. She the vibrations. Yeah. She put her hand on her own face and jaw and generate the same vibrations, and it would come out words. Wow. Which she could not hear. Mm. Which she could not hear. They're just vibrations, right? Right. right. But the vibration coming out, uh, that's coming out, if I, so, so if she said dog, and that vibration then was associated with touching a dog, yeah. the vibration for her meant dog, just as it meant our dog. So when she said dog, it was the same dog that we're talking about, but it wasn't represented by the word dog, mm. right? Right. It was it was represented by the vibration applied to tactile stimuli. It was entirely different. Stimulus control was the term we would use, right? And so, what it it, it really begins uh, to peel back some of the things that we think we need. <laughs> and we don't we don't need i mean let's face it to be aware and contact the world does not require us to hear ourselves does not require private speech does not require visualization because all of those things were precluded in helen's case right right and you conversed in five languages and wrote what four or five books and the so you know Pretty dramatic. So when she's passing over um, her fingers in reading Braille, and she hits a certain word, well, from her, she's not saying the word house to herself. You know, many blind people, uh, most almost all, can hear. Yes. Very well. Well, that's house, right? She can't. Mm. To her, when she passes over, it's just tactile stimulation. And she wrote about how in writing, she could, you would hear the difference between, let's say, 
a crimson and another shade of red is being written about. Now, how does she distinguish shades when she can never see, but she understood fully what that meant? How is that possible? Mm -hmm. And it's possible through a thing, which Skinner called an autoclave frame in this, in that she knew the difference between the tastes of an orange and a tangerine. And okay. this is what she described in her book. So she knew difference between close-in events. Okay. That makes sense. So for her, when she read Rose and Jenna, to her, she understood what they were talking about, even though she never saw or could never see that wavelength. Because she has didn't know the difference. So X is a close indifference of Y was what she learned. And X and Y could be variable features. Yes. So she understood that concept and she then exactly. applied it to things that she could have no direct knowledge of, Correct. such as colors. Correct. And this is what it's called a not where you have a, a concept, a relational concept in particular that relates one object to another this is the big fancy name is interdimensional abstract act <laughs> that sounds pretty scary relational concept is a is a more colloquial way of talking about it that then you can put anything there so once i've learned the concept of opposite for example all right given an array yeah. of stimuli those stimuli that are equidistant from a midpoint on the array a selected midpoint on the array are considered opposite that's what opposite is. And that's what we learn. You know, we say Democrats opposite Republican. Some, and, and someone comes in and says, oh, no, it's not. Progressive is opposite. In other words, they're arguing about the midpoint, right? And, yes. and, and the equal distance away. So we see that definition, that, that stimulus control, if you will, occurring every time we use the term. But now, once we've learned to make that, have that relational concept, we then put the word opposite to those features, right? We put the word opposite to those features. So when I see the features, I say opposite. When I see the word opposite, I look for those features. It yeah. becomes a two-way paired associate is what it's called. There's, it's called other things too, but well, it's easier to, for the, the listeners to, I believe, to talk about this two-way paired associate. You're pairing the word opposite with the features of opposite, right? Right. And so now I can say this is opposite of that. And you'll treat it as points on an array located for the midterm, right? Yeah. And so this is how we learn to extend these things. And this is how she did a great deal in terms of, you know, once you have a word, once you come under the control of features, and then you have a word that goes with it. Only in her case, it wasn't a spoken word. It was hand, tactile stimulation on the palm of her hand. So she did handwriting. Yes. And, and, and things were written out on her hand. She got very good at, at discriminating. You, you could even be a kind of a lousy writer on her hand. She'd still figure it out what you're talking about. And you would write out on her hand. And she would understand what you're saying. And so... These written things became just like the word opposite for us. Someone would write out opposite 
and she'd know what you're talking about. Yep. But it wasn't the word opposite she was using. It was the feeling of the letters on her hand. Right? So this is what brings us to examine, you know, these things we call private experience, things we take for granted. You know, like visualization, subvocal speech, all of these things. Right. Find out, like, you know, we can get along really well without any of it <laughs> under the right conditions. But unless we are discriminating our own behavior in its relation to the environment, we do not have awareness or consciousness. As she did not until she was seven years old. So say that sentence again, because that's an important. If we cannot discriminate our own behavior, and its relation to the environment, right. we do not have consciousness. So, and we'll, and I've got some examples of that a little later, but the, so what we're seeing here is that since animals can't do that, I would maintain they do not have consciousness in, in any way, shape, or form like humans do. Now, does that preclude the fact if we had a special training program to make them have these discriminations, you know, or would that preclude them having it? Maybe not. In other words, but I'm not sure in the natural environment, the contingencies are set up for them to do so. Now, some animals may. You've got certain types of ravens and crows and, and so on that seem to discriminate their own behavior and so on. And you can set up pigeon experiments to get it to begin to do that. But the question is, are they robust enough and around enough range of examples and not examples experience for them to have it. So they're conscious, but they're they're not aware of what they're doing in per se. And so in the way it's that hard, it's hard for us to hear that. Huh? We don't it, it doesn't yeah. seem to be true. <laughs> well I mean we find that it's humans don't. A human who's deprived of those contingencies aren't conscious. Why would we assume an animal is? But why are we assuming why why are we assuming that the animals are deprived of those? Well, it's a, I have not seen the type of tests of discriminating their own behavior. Like they're capable of discriminating their own behavior, whether or not they do so in such a way that would produce and and there and and here's the other issue. It could be on a continuum. In other words, there could be a certain amount of that going on um, in a rudimentary type of thing and not the full on that, that humans have. What kind so, of a test, for instance, would show this with an animal? Well, you would have to, you would have to be able to ask it, why did you do that? And it would have to tell you why. In other words, okay, why, why did, why did you take that step? Well, because I felt a little bump on my right side, and that indicated that the person on my back wanted to go that direction. No, they but they, that, would, say, they would say, because I got a treat. Well, this if is they could why say, they're repeating the if behavior. They could, if, they could, if they could say, if they could say, because I got a treat, yes. Just getting the treat wouldn't work, because Helen Keller got the treat, and she had no clue. She had no clue. She got the treat. She asked for things from her parents and was reinforced, but she had no clue of what was going on. She had no awareness that that was happening. And she would repeat behaviors, obviously. Oh, yeah, she... yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 
went hungry, she'd go to the stand next to the refrigerator. She did it consistently and communicated with her parents consistently on a range of events of things she wanted and didn't want, but she had no awareness whatsoever that she was doing it. None. So responding to reinforcers, if you will, under these, and it would make sense because you can actually reinforce single nerve firings, right? The neuron <laughs> probably doesn't have consciousness in that single neuron, right? <laughs> so you can you can actually train a cockroach's leg taken away from the cockroach. As long as it's got that big motor ganglion in its joint there, there you can you can actually condition that to move. So the fact that responding to reinforcement occurs doesn't indicate at all that there's consciousness involved. So what is consciousness and, exactly? How do you define it? Well, being aware that you're aware. Okay. In other words, in other words, seeing that you're seeing and so on. I talk and I'm discriminating that I'm talking and I then say, and I say, I'm talking versus you're talking. Right. In a consistent basis across behaviors in my interactions to the environment. That's basically consciousness. And and I got more to say in that topic. <laughs> I actually saved it to the end of what we're going to talk about. It was a kind of a cumulative thing. <laughs> if we want to go through what I plan to talk about, we got off on again our tangents. We we went to the end. This is the end conversation, by the way, versus <laughs> the beginning conversation. But but it's yes, it you know, is it is quite a stretch. How do they when occur? You, and how do we program it? When we think about we think about the interactions that we have with our very social animals, horses, very okay. social, dogs, very social, and the interactions that we have with them, they certainly seem to be as aware of themselves as, well, aware, aware as many people are. Well, so, they seem to be because we, we say, how would we be responding if we looked like that in this situation? Right, so... <laughs> That's right. And so, so, you know, <laughs> so again, is that whole private events? Is anybody conscious? Does anybody have consciousness? Um, and the answer is, and the answer is, it's probably, yes, people are, are have consciousness, but it's not something that probably resides in them. And right. the it resides in the relation to the environment. So, and so, don't forget that animals. Animals such as the dog you're mentioning uh, can hear and see. Yes, and, and so respond, they can respond to a range of stimuli and nuances and changes in stimuli that Helen couldn't respond to. Right, and you know, and so they can learn to step back when they see a certain change in your facial expression or or stance. They can learn to move head. They can they can put their head down. If there's indicators that in the past, when you've done that, you delivered a punishment and so on and so forth, they can look like, oh, you know, there's been a series of experiments that show, you know, do dogs, they look guilty when you come home, for example. They know what they did. Well, there's been experiments to show that that's not what that is. They actually have done experiments to show that dogs are simply, there's a stimulus there in whose presence they have been punished when you're there. And so when you come in and like that stuff's torn up all over the floor and you walk in 
it's just like when there's been stuff thrown up on the floor and you're there, it's going to be bad for me. Is basically what it is. Not that I know I did that, right? And so the, and there's been controlled experiments, some very creative ones that demonstrate that there is no guilt in dogs, for example. Even though we say, oh, they're guilty. They know what they did. It turns out that's not the case. They can control for that. And they found that it's not. So because (laughs) guilt implies that you know right from wrong, which I don't think they do, but they do have fear, um, what I call affection. Yeah, they're responding to a range of, they're aware in the sense of conscious, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not aware that they're aware. Mm. In other words, they're not aware that they're responding to the to all these things. They're not watching themselves do it like we do. You know, they're not looking at themselves and then basing their other behaviors on that discrimination. Now, you can get a pigeon to say whether or not it packed 25 times or 20 times for food. It'll discriminate its own behavior. You can arrange that. And so on. So there are conditions under which you can get an animal to observe its own actions. But it takes some experimental arrangement in order to get that to get that accomplished. There are examples of ravens and crows burying something while other crows and ravens are looking at it. And then when they then the ones looking at it go away, they go go get it and hide it somewhere else. And the temptation is to say they're aware that they're being watched and that they need to do it other than in the you know a history of when there's others there and i bury it i come back it's gone <laughs> versus now when, if, if it gets moved and they're absent you know i gotta get you know you can explain it without all the uh, awareness stuff all of private experience and so on is interesting because there's a question i raise is are we Actually, when we ask questions about our own private experience, humans, are we asking the wrong questions? And I think Alex mentioned something that, you know, we conscious or or whatever, but are we, you know, if I see, I have a cup, I'll hold my cup up. You can see it. There it is. Get in front of the, there it is. There it is. Right. It's a black mug that I'm looking at right here. I'm looking at it. I can see it. I can say, well, it's, eh, it's about five inches tall looks like it's like two and a half to maybe three inches across maybe that might be not much it's got a handle it's electric so it's it actually a self-heating mug actually you'll see the little indicator oh, response yes. here oh very and snazzy so it keeps my coffee hot even when yes. it's all it and so forth and i can describe all of that to you and, and so forth and i'm seeing it right and you say i'm joe sees the mug. I'm seeing the mug. And I held it up and you for you to see. And you saw right. the mug. Yes. How do I know, even though I describe features of the mug, that you see the mug the same way I do? You can't. But the black to me is the same black that you see. The same red little light color is the same light color you see. And you we could both say it's red, but you may have learned to call whatever it is you see red. Right. And I learned to call whatever I see red. But it doesn't mean it's the same thing. Well, we treat the same thing for the purpose of communication and for the purpose of interaction. 
and we communicate and we treat the descriptions that we each share as the same, but there is no earthly way or unearthly way, as far as I know, <laughs> to, to say that we actually see the same thing. I don't know if my color black is the same as your color black. Right. There's no, and, this is, and we call this a public event. <laughs> and the only reason we call it a public event is because we see what's occasioning talking about it. Yes. But we still can't see me seeing it. And I can't see you seeing it, but I can see, I can have a conversation with you about it, about what you're seeing, what I'm seeing, and yes. we can share common words so we can have a common conversation. Pass me the black cup. Well, you may see the black cup as purple, but you're going to pass me the right cup. That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. So now when I take the cup away, all right, take the cup, put it away, and say, close my eyes and visualize the black cup, or just see it in front of me, the black cup. You can't see me seeing that black cup. That's right. right. Can't see me seeing it. And I can describe it to you. I can say, oh, this is a black cup. It's got a handle. It's got a red light. It sits on a base. It, you know, keeps, you know, I can tell you a whole bunch of stuff about it, what I'm seeing. But you can't see that I'm seeing that. But guess what? You couldn't see that I'm seeing it when it was there. That's right. So what makes one public and the other one private? What's the difference? And that's the problem. That is there's yes. no difference. Except in how that scene comes to be. In other words, it's the stimulus control. The occasion for seeing is under the control of the presence of a cup in one situation and the presence of instructions in another situation. We call one in the presence of a cup, dimensional control, and how we respond to the cup is instructional control. Yeah. There's the music. We have to stop somewhere, and this seemed like a good cliffhanger to leave you with. Joe is about to differentiate between dimensional and instructional control, and then we're going to head off into some really fun rabbit holes. And in terms of instructions, I'm going to give you a quick one, and that's to add my new books to your holiday shopping list. For the horse lovers on your list, there's my new book, Modern Horse Training, A Constructional Guide to Becoming Your Horse's Best Friend. Here's one of the many wonderful reviews that people have been leaving on Amazon. Someone wrote, amazingly thorough and thoughtful book. There really is no better approach to becoming your horse's best friend. Whether you want to trail ride, do performance work, have an easier time with husbandry procedures, or simply find ways for you and your horse to stay mentally and physically engaged, this book is the best guide. Thank you, Alexander Curland, for this gem. And thank you to the writer of this and to all the other many great reviews that people have left. One person did ruin my 100% five-star review ratings by leaving the following review. Uh, this person said, if you're into clicker training, then this is the book for you. 
If you're not into clicker training, you will not like this book. Well, I'd say that's fair enough. And I'm assuming from this comment that this person wasn't into clicker training. But I'm guessing that most of you listening to this podcast are. So based on this review, this is very much the book for you. If you're into clicker training, it's a great guide. And that's true whether you are an experienced clicker trainer or you are new to the whole idea of using clicker training, using positive reinforcement to train your horse. You can order it through my website, theclickercenter.com, and you can also get it from Amazon and other online booksellers. Amazon is probably the easiest way to get it, especially if you are ordering it from outside of the United States. You'll certainly save a lot on postage by using Amazon. My other new book is a children's book, Teddy's to the Rescue. This is the first in a five-part series of the Kenyan Bear books. You can read about the children's books in my blog, theclickercenterblog.com. And again, you can order Teddy's to the Rescue through my website and also through Amazon. So cuddle up this winter with your young readers and their favorite teddy bears and share the adventures of Kenyan Bear and his friends with them. So happy holidays, everyone. Train well and have fun with your horses. (music) 